Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 947. Yes, ID10T is fully a thing. Uh, you can follow ID10T on Instagram, ID10T on Twitter. Uh, the ID10T festival is coming back in November 3rd, 4th, Orange County Fairgrounds. Uh, we have going to announce bands soon, comedians in the comedy tent, and then uh, Comic-Con stuff. And there's an EDM. So that'll all be announced uh, within the next handful, maybe like two months, maybe a little less than two months. Uh, we'll have our, our full lineup announced. So go to ID10T.com, not just for info on that, but also because um, I'm making uh, shirts and fun stuff now that I would want to buy uh, as a consumer. So I'm just making it because I want this stuff to exist. So go to ID10T.com. Um, there's a couple shirts on there, more on the way. Uh, some pins coming, and then also I've actually made the mugs that we use on Talking Dead. So the mugs you see on the coffee table that we drink out of every week, I've made those. They are now available at ID10T.com. So go uh, check those out. That would be great. But let's talk about some other people now. Mike Amend writes, I'm the music teacher at a Latino-focused charter school in St. Paul, Minnesota. I've been listening to your podcast since the Nerdist days. It has inspired me to follow my dreams and make things happen for myself. To that end, I am building a band program from the ground up, and we are in need of instruments. I have set up a donor's choose to fund a new concert bass drum and uh, need help getting the word out. If anyone would like to donate to our project, visit donorschoose.org slash band. If any of your listeners would like to donate brass, woodwind, or percussion instruments to our school, they can contact me at mamend, M-A-M-E-N-D, at cesarchavezschool.com. Uh, we'll take new or used instruments. Please help bring a uh, band to the school. Nice? Yes. I support this, Mike. Well done. Good for you for making your thing about other people. Doing it for the kids. Also, Craig Sheldon writes, after taking Chris's words to heart and taking a charge to, to do that thing I've always put off, I did another one. This makes me very happy, you guys. Um, I've decided to write and draw my very own webcomic, and I put uh, all 24 pages online for free. Anyone can read it. It's a comedy spoof on the superhero genre, full of colorful caped characters and a sideways look at what it really takes to be a modern-day superhero. Join Hank Holtz as the titular Planetario in a comic that dares to ask the question, are people really worth saving? How come the cops always arrive after the hero? And what do you think when your daughter is dating the son of your arch nemesis? It's currently at his Tumblr page, craigsheldoncomics.tumblr.com. But this episode is Alan Alda, which uh, I was nervous about. I mean, Alan Alda, the man's an icon. Um, I mean, he's just amazing. MASH, he's been in so many great movies. He hosted Scientific American Frontiers for like 15 years. The man loves science. He's a guy, he's a guy with comedy training who loves science. 
uh, and he, he wrote a great book that I listened to the audio version of because he reads it. And I listened to the whole book before the podcast. And it, the whole book. Oh, I'm so proud of me. Uh, anyway, the book is called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And it's all about communication uh, and improving communication. And there's a big thread about improving communication through improv, uh, taking improv classes. And uh, it's just great. He's a he's a good egg, Alan Alda. And uh, and I was really honored to talk to him. And then he asked me questions about the end of the podcast because he's starting a podcast too. So uh, I was very happy to went to his hotel room in Beverly Hills. And uh, we banged out a podcast. And it was an absolute honor and a joy. Um, if I understood you, what I have this look on my face is now available in hardcover and paperback wherever books are sold. Um, this episode is brought to you by Mattress Firm. Are you struggling to get to sleep right now, even? Well, if so, the fine people at Mattress Firm want to help. Mattress Firm, a.k.a. America's Neighborhood Mattress Store, can help you stretch your budget just a little bit further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. There are mattress experts here, people, and they're not just mattress experts. They can straight up help you build your bed from headboards to adjustable bases to sheets. They even have bedroom decor. They have you covered literally and figuratively. Plus, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast and save 15% with the code podcast15 through April 10th. Mattress Firm offers a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and 120-night low-price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Mattressfirm.com slash podcast. Get your sleeping in order. See how sleeping could be tremendously improved. Thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast number 947 with Mr. Alan Alda. Katie, I am now communicating that I would like you to roll the thing. Oh, before I forget, before you roll the thing, Katie, pause rolling the thing. Um, I, I added something at the end of this podcast, so the podcast will sound like it's done, but just stick around um, because I want to read something at the end. So, And I'll explain, I'll explain all that at the end. All right. Re-roll the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol. Luggage. We have luggage. <laughs> Houston, we have luggage. <laughs> uh, this is good. It's nice to know that you have a change of clothes. Yeah, some fresh you, underwear you know, for the second half of the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say this is a sleepover show, so we're going to be here for a couple of days. Am I close enough? If I'm like this? Yeah. Do you sound okay? Do I sound all right now? I mean, I, as I said when I, when you first came in, I. I listened to the. I love listening to the audio version because I like to hear. I like to hear you tell the story, yeah. rather than me just reading reading right. words. And it well, was. I can add what uh, what I think are the important inflections and things. You know? Yeah, but also I, I sort of what I imagine is the time and energy it takes to record. You oh, know, boy, because <laughs> it's Cause like it's a six. It's like a six hour and fifteen minute book. So it seemed like a lot longer than that because I did six hours a day. Well, because you say everything a few times. Right, right, right. Um, and they don't really care, you know. They want you to uh, just get in one take, get the words out. <laughs> I can't talk for more than like two hours at a time. Yeah. I always try to listen for 
All right, when did the author get tired, and then where's the pickup? Oh, they sound fresh right there. I think yeah, that was yeah. The... You hear you hear a change, and suddenly the voice sounds like he's had a night's sleep. You know, <laughs> he's all yeah. chipper. Yeah. But I, I love the book, and for anyone who doesn't know, it's all about communication, and it's all about you. Essentially, founded a program at Stony Brook University about right. communication. Right. The, the, the all the Center for Communicating Science, which we started nine years ago. Oh, wow. And since then, we've trained in workshops. We've trained over 11,000 scientists and doctors. And we, and we do it in this unusual way. It's pretty unusual, which is to teach them improvisation exercises. Yeah. Well, you saw that in the book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, it opens them up. And at first, they don't want to do it. It's amazing how many people are afraid of improvisation. The word scares them. They think it, first of all, they think it's comedy improvisation, which it isn't. Right. It's just exercises that put you in touch with another person where you really read their face and you read their body language. And it, it turns out you can't really communicate with somebody unless you observe them and know who, the, who are you talking to? Right. Are they getting it? What's their state of mind? While you're talking to them. Well, I don't think we're evolved to communicate through devices and communicate through, you know, texting and emails and phones. I mean, like, we we need to connect with other human beings face-to-face. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, the funny thing is that I've found that once you get used to -to face-to-face communication where you're aware more of how the person is getting it than you are what the perfect way to say it is. Mm -hmm. You know, communication is not... I think of a great message, and then I pour it into your head and then expect you to understand it. I have to know what's happening in your head so I can adjust what I'm saying. Right. That kind of thing. Once you get used to that, it actually affects the way you write for somebody who's not there in time and space at all. In what way? I put the first sentence down and I think, what has this done to your brain? What what state of mind are you in now? So now I know what how to begin the next sentence. I mean, I actually do that when I write. When you when you were listening to me read my book, that was the product of me sentence by sentence figuring out how I could make it easy for you to follow what I was saying and and keep it interesting, keep right. it, still keep it surprising. Well, it's, you know, there were so many things in the book that I just kept going, yes, 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 because... <laughs> That's you know, nice to hear. It Thank is. You. Well, I mean, first of all, it's all about science communication. And as, as I said before, and forgive well, me... Well, I hope it's about all kinds of communication. It's all, all kinds of communication. Mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and all, uh, business, all kinds of things. But go ahead. Well, just that... I'm literally in pre-production right now on a science show yeah. where the the thesis of it is, can we make a science show that that tells human stories so that people who wouldn't necessarily watch a science show would go, oh, wow, that's this is why science and, and technology are important. And this is, you know, the, the humanity, actually, there's a ray of hope in humanity and it's not all toxic shit. There's so many so many human angles to come in on in science. First of all, what you were just describing, the need that we have for this new thing that was discovered or the the amazement that we might feel in hearing about the discovery or how it was accomplished. And the other thing is the, the story of the person who went through all the trials and hardships of making the discovery because these things don't just come out of the blue. Right. 
You don't go to work and say, now I'm going to discover this new, <laughs> this new element. You know, there's a lot of not just hard work, but failure. The failure is sometimes the most interesting part of it. How do you recover from the failure? It's not down that alley. How do you find the alley that it is down? Right. Those are really good stories, and all of that is almost always left out. I, we, and what we had a workshop once where the nanoscientist, the guy who ran the nanoscience um, division of this university, discovered with his graduate student how to make the world's thinnest glass. It was one atom thick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember that in, in the, the book. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he wrote about it, and it got picked up by one journal. But then he took the workshop and realized that it's an interesting human story that he discovered how to make this thin glass by accident. He didn't realize what he was stumbling into. Mm-hmm. The next time he told the story, it got picked up by newspapers and websites across the United States and Great Britain. And then he got calls from people wanting to invest money in it. You know, it it, it also, the other human interesting is, is in the interim, he had been uh, given a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for the thinnest glass. So it had two elements, two human elements now that made all the difference. We're interested in things that happen by accident, some new view of nature. And often the scientist is not in the position to realize because they're not thinking about the person who's at the other end of the communication. Right. They're thinking about, I did this to the chemicals, and then I did that to the chemicals, and that's how I got this result. But that's not the human part of it, and we're interested in the human part. Well, I, at least you can snag us with the human part. We're right. interested in the thing itself. At least I am. I mean, it's, you know, I think one of the things that's so interesting to me about everything that you've done is that it feels like you've just pursued things that are interesting to you. You know, improv in the 60s and then acting and then and then you decide in the 90s, oh, I, you know, I love science. I'm going to I'm going to start telling science stories and communication and and so just kind of going back, where was this just part of your foundational personality core of I just I'm going to pursue things that are interesting to me? I, it, I, somehow it is. I've been very lucky. The, the big luck I, I had, well, two kinds of luck. One kind is that I would have been happy just playing in good material with actors I respected in front of an audience that got it. I actually had that formulation when I was in my 20s. And I would have been happy acting in Cleveland or St. Louis. It didn't matter to me. So that's a good bit of luck, because then no matter what happens, you're okay. Yeah. The other good bit of luck was I got famous and rich doing MASH. (laughs) (laughs) That worked out pretty well. That was a nice bit of luck. (laughs) And but if it didn't happen, I was lucky to have the the attitude that I still have. I can. It's amazing. Our, my wife Arlene laughs at me because up even into my fifties, I had a list of jobs that if everything fell fell apart, I would not do certain jobs. <laughs> like it what? Was, Laying asphalt at the top <laughs> of the list. I just I don't want to do that. I drive a cab. Right or now, I guess uh, Uber, or but maybe not Uber because they don't treat their drivers that well, right. from what I read. But um, I would, I, I was ready to go back to whatever I had to do to start over. 
because of that original lucky idea that what mattered was doing something that interested me that kind of meant something. And it grew in a way that I really didn't expect into exploring what communication is. And I had the freedom to do that. I had the freedom to follow my nose because of the success of MASH. And I still get to have the pleasure of acting. And my life is very happy. I'm I'm truly lucky because I get to do these things that really interest me and give me a feeling of growth. Yeah, but but also the idea of how innovation occurs with interdisciplinary study. It's like, you know, it just took the right person, which was you, to have all this improv training, to have all this acting training and experience to go, I wonder if there's a better way for engineers and scientists to communicate. I know, I'll take these tools that I've learned and and see if this does anything. Well, that's what happened. But what happened was it wasn't in my head that I discovered that. I discovered it in action, in motion. When I did the science show because I was interested in science and I wanted to learn from the scientists what they did, and therefore I didn't want to just read a narration. I wanted to talk with them, and I knew I'd spend the whole day with them if I was interviewing them. So I'd have a chance to really have them teach me. But then when we were on camera, I realized if I didn't use the improvising skills and engage them in a conversational approach to this, they'd, they'd, they'd probably start to do little lectures. Right. And it wouldn't be as much fun. I wouldn't learn as much. Because my objective was to come out of that day really understanding what they did. So if they started talking jargon to me, I just... I just would stop them. I said, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I grabbed one guy by the cheeks and shook his head. <laughs> well, and he's one of the world's great scientists. <laughs> well, it's, you know, some people are, can be very uncomfortable inter- interpersonally. And so yeah. it's, how do you get their shields down and, and not get them to, do, to go into autopilot? I didn't find it that difficult. Because I think if you, most scientists, if, you, if they can see on your face that you really want to understand what they do, they really want to tell you because they're proud of it and they're amazed at it. Right. They want to share that amazement with you. The other thing is, if somebody was a real stiff, he wouldn't be invited on the show. Right. You know, so there'd be a little bit of scouting it out beforehand. But you could see people come to life. Sometimes people who probably came to life for the first time in front of a camera because it's not often you have somebody in front of a camera who doesn't want you to say a certain number of things but sure. wants you to just get this him to understand it. Right. You know? That's all I wanted. So they kind of lit up at that. And they have a good sense of humor, most scientists. And you, wouldn't, you may not think so, but they, they're smart. And one of the things about funny is smart. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I just, you know, obviously we just lost Professor Hawking a couple of days ago. Hilarious. He was. <laughs> <laughs> but I have this T-shirt that has Hawking's face on it, and I've had it for like a decade. And it has a quote of his that says, my goal is simple. It is the complete understanding of the universe. He's like, ah, <laughs> yeah. you know, funny. He's cheeky. He's got a sense yeah, of humor. Yeah, yeah. But I want to I talk a little bit about... I, I met him once. By oh, the you way, did? He, yeah. It was right. He had, he had seen, I think, the opening night of a play I did in which I played uh, Richard Feynman, the great American right, of physicist. And, uh, and he was, it took about 
five or six minutes just to exchange three sentences of with course. Him, you know, with the machine he had. But he was charming. You know, he, he hardly moved, and yet he was even on his face. He was expressing some of what he what he felt having seen the play. He liked the play very much, and he was he was witty about it. I mean, the idea that he still managed with just the tip of a finger, yeah, to change for and for decades, decades. I mean, people with you know people with that affliction don't tend to live to almost eighty. Well, he was diagnosed uh, with. Uh, they, I think they said he would die at twenty-one or something. Right, lived to seventy-six. That he he would have been a genius anyway. I mean, we know him. We know him partly. I mean, the, the world knows him to some extent because he's the smart guy in the wheelchair. Right. So there's a focus on his disability. But without the disability, he would have been just as much a genius. The only thing is, it, it was such an, an iconic thing for people who are not disabled that I think it stuck in their heads. It became a meme. Sure, yeah. But he still had to exercise, in my opinion, he still had to exercise a great deal of courage and strength to be able to keep doing his work now slowed down by this having to conc- I think what he did was he would concoct it in his head and then lay it out uh, through dictation or, right. through, or the way however he was able to manipulate the machine and that that's a challenge that really slows you down and you have to adjust to that and I, I just I'm very interested in adjusting I, I had a, they, they Gave me an honorary degree at the University of Dundee in Scotland last summer. And they said, and we want you to say a few words, but you only have three minutes. <laughs> so literally a few words. Yeah, right. Yeah, you could count them. So, so uh, I said, I only have three minutes, and I wanted, so I thought I'd, I'd tell you the secret of life. <laughs> it doesn't take very long. Adapt, adjust, revise. That's the whole thing. That's how nature does it. Evolution adapts, adjusts, and revises. That's how we adjust to a new world, a new digital world. We all have to keep adjusting. It's how we adjust to old age. Things get old and rusted and become unscrewed and fall off us as we get older. And the only way you can keep going is by adapting and adjusting and revising the way you handle things. I mean, and and the foundation of that is improv, basically. It is. It it is. See, look how it changed my life. It changes everybody's life who does it. We just did a three-day workshop in Israel for Israeli scientists and American scientists who are going to be working together, and this helps you collaborate better. The common phrase we heard was this was a life-changing experience. Oh wow! Because you you just, to experience this freedom and the pleasure of connection, connection without fear, without anxiety. What is it, what is this person going to think of me? Without any of those thoughts, but just working together, being in sync, physically and mentally. That, that that's a wonderful feeling, but people are afraid of it. I think you probably read in the book when I did this uh, workshop with actors. Uh, I said we're going to now we're going to do a workshop for a whole week, 
and I, um, and I oh, yeah, and they all were freaked out. <laughs> they, they, they really freaked out because we were going to do improvising for a week. And one, one woman who was an experienced actress and a good actress, she had 30 years' experience on the stage, she later told me, I was thinking of faking a heart attack to get out, <laughs> to get out of the improv. <laughs> well, it's the perfect way to, to understand how to adjust because obviously most people – are terrified of being humiliated. There's that yeah. dread of, oh my God, I'm going to go up. I don't know what I'm going to say. People are going to say yeah. I'm dumb. I'm yeah. going to be embarrassed and you know shit the stage and run off. And uh, but I think once they're up there and they realize, oh, you know, it's you're a team, and if you work together, yeah, and we okay. we don't even get them to the point where they're doing scenes. They do role playing and stuff, but they that's role playing in situations that they're familiar with. But what the what the improv exercises are, are very basic early exercises that put you in touch with the other person and the funny thing is you can you can do things like this during the day without having to go to an improv class if you really concentrate on observing the person you're talking to it it kind of changes you can you talk a little bit about what improv when you cuz i feel like in the book you mentioned you said you did an improv of uh, something to do with Kennedy. So I'm guessing it was early 60s you were doing yeah, improv. Yeah. And so what was the improv scene like at that time? Because I, ima- I I guess that that's sort of the beginnings of what kind of modern improv ended up becoming was around that time. Is that correct? I think so. Uh, I was in an improv company called Compass, which was an offshoot of the original Compass in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And from Compass in Chicago came Second City. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was doing Compass at Hyannisport uh, in uh, Massachusetts, uh, Second City had just opened a company in New York. So Second City was popular in New York and Chicago. But it was still the early days. I mean, this was, well, it was around, it was the 60s when, John Kennedy was president, you know, still alive. And we did a—half the show was sketches that we had developed during uh, rehearsal through improv. Nothing Mm -hmm. was written. So there was an hour of stuff that we knew would work. Then we took an an intermission, and before the intermission, we said, give us headlines, give us words, things you want to see sketches on. Then we'd have a 15-minute intermission to try to figure out— what sketches we would make up on the spot <laughs> in front of the audience. We didn't know what we were going to do. We'd, we'd say, okay, you, you, do, uh, you do the missile crisis. Well, there wasn't a missile crisis. You do, you do uh, uh, taxes, collecting taxes, and do that, that the old lady you like to do. I'll, I'll, I'll be the salesman. You know, that. We'd do an hour of spot improv, improvisation. And one of the things we did was a press conference where one of the, one of us was, I guess it was Khrushchev at that time, yeah, and the another one was uh, I was Kennedy. So the funny thing was, we were in the hotel. We were in the, our cabaret was in the basement of the hotel in Hyannisport, where Kennedy gave his real press conferences in the morning upstairs. Oh, wow. So he'd give the morning press conference, <laughs> then he'd go get on his boat or whatever he did. <laughs> And at night, I'd give a press conference, and often the same reporters who were there in the morning working with him would be downstairs 
asking me questions that hadn't been in the paper yet, and I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> but you were, you were improvising as Kennedy. Yeah. Oh, so I, I, had, I had a way to get out of everything. But, so, but it was fun. And then coming off of that, um, what was the journey between that and then MASH? Did you decide, did you make a conscious decision like, oh, I think I want to do television and film? Or did you think, ah, eh, you know, I'll stick to theater? Or was it just, did you just sort of take it as it came no, along? No, I, I, for me, being an actor was being in the theater. I, I didn't want to get, uh, I didn't want to lose that learning opportunity that the theater gives you. And I, and I just... Uh, I loved being on the stage. I still feel more comfortable on the stage than I do in front of a camera. But I, I've, you know, I've learned how to do it. But I, but I, I just love being on the stage. And um, it just, things just developed. I, had, I never had a plan. You know, I think uh, five-year plans went out with Russia and China. <laughs> they, they never seemed to work. <laughs> Yeah, people are always saying, well, picture where you're going to be five years from now. For what purpose? Yeah. Because it's not what you're going to be. <laughs> no, that's true. But I think at least, I think it's good to sort of have some ideas and then, but be flexible about yeah, whatever, because yeah. you obviously can't control anything. Yeah. Well, and that is the way I work. I mean, I have, I have an awful lot of, uh, that I'm involved in, and I know where I'd like it to go, but I'm also ready for it to take turns that I don't expect. I think, I think it, we don't, it, things don't really work well if you don't, if you don't, if you're not ready to improvise. Yeah. And you, during this period of time in the sixties, I know you're working with Mike Nichols and you're working with yeah. all these really amazing people. Are you, are you just absorbing your surroundings at that point? I mean, when you go into something, cause it sounds like, with the amount of experiments that you performed on yourself over the years yes. for, like, for just science, just, you know, personal science experiments and emotional science experiments. Is that, was, was that happening even back then? Are you working with Mike Nichols and absorbing all of his energy or, or what? Oh, of course. What's yeah. the experience? I don't think anybody would work with Mike Nichols and not try to learn from the experience. He was a genius or, you know, what, if there are geniuses in show business, he was one. Yeah, and uh, I still remember things he said, challenges he gave me, and one of the most important ones is what we've been talking about, which is relating. You know, he said Barbara Harris and I, the wonderful actress, uh, we were doing the scene in the apple tree, and Mike was directing it, and he said, "You're not relating. Relate more." So I thought relating was bending over and putting my face in the other person's face. <laughs> to know relate more, I'd have bent over further. <laughs> and it was a long time later that I realized relating is being connected to the other person and you can relate to them even if your back is to them or their back is to you. And Mike, what what Mike said really stuck in my head and helped me remember that. He said... You think relating is the icing on the cake. It's the cake. <laughs> and you know, it's the, it's the cake not just on the stage. It's the cake in life. No matter what you're trying to get accomplished, if you can't do it through relating, it's going to be a lot harder and a lot slower, and it might not happen at all. Yeah, and I feel like it's even more challenging now because there are so many things that allow us to just be in our own worlds, our own heads, isolate from other people that it feels like it's, 
you really do have to make a concerted effort to go out and connect and talk to people and care about what they have to say yeah. and not and not just go, oh, I'm thinking about myself while they're moving their mouth. Well, I'm thinking about my cell phone. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, well because, done. Because, I mean, I know that, that call of the uh, electronic thing, you know, you, you, you don't even have to hear it ding. No. You just know it's in there, and it's got all this stuff in it, and you can't help putting it up to your face. <laughs> Are you a technology guy? Do you like it, or do you put I, up with it? No, I'm nerdy. I, I Actually, I, I did commercials for Atari a long time ago, so pretty much right after MASH was over, like 35 years ago. Oh, my God. And I was fascinated with the there were little machines that my, I have a watch that has more computing power now than those machines oh yeah had. yeah but you could you could program them so I learned a little bit of uh, the a language computing language called basic basic programming and uh, I, I programmed the Atari to simulate a psychiatric session <laughs> What did it say? It would say, uh, <laughs> tell me about yourself. <laughs> and you'd start typing, and it would pick up certain words. Oh, tell me more about your job. You know, and you'd, oh, I, your, your mother, that sounds interesting. Tell me more. That's brilliant, because that's, that, like, there's a form of psychotherapy where they just That's bounce, all you need. Yeah, they just what, bounce what, back. What more you want for $50, $180. Yeah. <laughs> So just around the time you'd get really involved and you're really hooked in this, this situation, in this process, the machine would say, I'm sorry, your hour is up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a real simulation. You know? Just that little bit, yeah. just to screw with so someone. So I got really interested in um, computers and how they worked. And I, I, got, I had fun taking them apart and putting them back together and... And so I started. My friends weren't as as up on that as I was. They they weren't interested. So I would fix my friends' computers, and I had a. I would then send them an email uh, from your friends at Celebrity Tech Support, <laughs> and my slogan was, "Why let a nobody touch your stuff." <laughs> I can't really. Yeah, if I could bring in enough other celebrities, we could have a real big business. All you would need, yeah, just a small celebrity tech team. It was just like all the people that did. You know, if you could just take like the the people who were doing Match Game in the late seventies, like oh, Richard (laughs) Dawson's going to come fix your phone, and Alan Alda, and 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 Elkie Summers is going (laughs) to fix your cable. But you got to find ones who can actually do it. Yeah, that's the other thing. I I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, destroy their machines. You know, they worked after I. Gave them advice. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the most incredible things to me about MASH as, an, as, as a concept is that it is very rare that someone can take, you know, one of the great movies of all time, translate it into a television show, and then the show has a complete, wildly successful life and voice of its own. Yeah. So what... You talk a little bit in the book about how, well, the cast, we all would hang out together and we we weren't isolated. We were very much a, you know, it was very much a community. But when that show was developing, how 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 did that happen? I mean, what was the secret sauce? Was it just luck or? Well, they really did pull together some brilliant people. I don't just mean the cast because the cast was wonderful. 
but Larry Gelbart wrote the first four years almost yeah. entirely. A, f- a few others of us also wrote during that time. Oh, Katie, I think someone's... <laughs> Maybe she has something interesting to say. Why don't you Maybe, bring her in? I know. I should have let her come in and yeah. sit down. Tell us about your day. Yeah, you got to you... go with the flow. Who's the biggest asshole you've ever cleaned? <laughs> Who's getting dirt on people? <laughs> what, what were you saying before? Uh, you were talking about Larry Gelbhardt and MASH and oh, kind yeah, of developing yeah. this. Larry Gelbhardt, the, the producer of the show was an extraordinarily good director, Gene Reynolds, and he was a wonderful producer. And we had... Something that other shows didn't have. We weren't just copying a movie. We were trying to portray the lives of people who really lived, even though we were working in many different styles. It wasn't realistic. It was comedic. It was farcical. Sometimes it was dramatic. But we were trying to use the experiences of people who really lived through those horrible times during the Korean War. And that that gave it a, I think it gave it a flavor that people recognized was not totally frivolous or trivial. Right. I mean, we wanted to be entertaining, and when I think we were. But we also honored the fact that people had suffered and were driven a little crazy by the experience. Well, yeah, and I mean, there's so much wonderful gallows humor in the show, and you really get the sense that, you know, the comedy is a defense mechanism and it's yeah. a coping mechanism. And you know, I mean, these people, these people are, you know, they're they're joking around while they're well, they have soldiers' bodies. Which, open by on the, the way, table. I'm sorry to say that I hear all surgeons do that. They do. Yeah, <laughs> you, you don't want to believe when they're putting the thing on your face that the. <laughs> The surgeon's going to be doing uh, Henny Youngman any minute. Well, as long as ever they put everything back where it's supposed to go, I'm totally fine with yeah, that. Oh, not just everything where it goes, but towels and pip clips and they, oh, they they put everything in. There. <laughs> you get your money's worth. <laughs> but I mean, even even kind of overcoming that, it's sensitive. It's a sensitive topic, you know. It's sensitive to to tell the story of soldiers at war with comedy, and yeah. yet. You know, you're able to do it in a way that was so meaningful to people. I think one of the things that we all agreed on, because I I didn't want to, a lot of people know this story, that I didn't want to do the show unless, until we all agreed that we didn't want to do a show that ignored the war. Right. That it wasn't just hijinks at the front. Because most army shows up, I think all army shows up until that time, were farcical situations where nobody was in danger of anything except a dressing down from the sergeant. Right. But in our show, people were coming in shot at, and sometimes they died. And that hadn't been done before. We mixed the hard truth of the danger of war with people's natural reaction to that. So I, that gave us something that that we wouldn't have had otherwise. But w- what was nice was that we all went into it wanting to do that. The only people who didn't want to do it was the network, who said, "Don't you?" In the pilot, they said, "You can't show any blood." 
Stay out of the operating room. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Uh, you know they're surgeons in a war. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, in fact, the first time somebody died, the guy who was head of programming said, what is this, a situation tragedy? <laughs> oh, God. That's <laughs> <laughs> eh, probably good he wasn't writing for the show. Yeah, right. But, you know, it. you also have... Society evolving, you know, like the Vietnam War is essentially a televised war. Yeah. People, people are becoming um, accustomed to seeing the horrors of it. And it really was kind of the zeitgeist of the time, I think. I think people were ready. I mean, anytime before that, all the shows were chipper and, oh, everything works out in the end. And, mm. you know, it was like a, a, a break from real life. But the 70s, between MASH and the Norman Lear shows, I mean, you, you really see people are ready to start talking about real situations. Yeah, and I think Mary Tyler Moore helped, too, because there you had comedy that was based on character and situations that weren't mechanical, but that derived from real kind of recognizable human behavior. Yeah. And that helped us a lot, because we still had writers coming in from the outside who were coming in with kind of standard situations that you'd seen before. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took us a while till till people realized what we were trying to do. Do you feel like you did everything that you wanted to do in that show? Or did you think, oh, I, we tried to do this and they, we never were able to? Or do you feel like you told all the stories? No, I th- I was... Uh, Worried toward the, toward the, before we ended that we were running out of steam because we had done so much that we wanted to do. Yeah. I don't think there was anything that we I wish. We, for years, I've, we've talked a lot about improvising in this conversation. And for years, I'd wanted us to improvise. I thought it would be fun to improvise the whole show. Oh, wow. And it turns out that Larry Gilbart and Gene Reynolds actually did decide, I think independent of my urging, they they came up with the idea of having um, Cleet Roberts, who was a reporter. I think he had actually reported on the Korean War. Have him come in as always doing a documentary and interview us. And half of what we said during the interviews had been figured out, had been improvised by us into tape recorders the week before. Uh-huh. And then Larry would take that and massage it and punch it up a little bit. But then part of the interview would be on-the-spot questions that we didn't know were coming. And that was spot improv. And some of that is kind of wonderful to see, for me to see, because I can see all these actors who by this time are so in tune with their characters that you don't see them thinking, what should I say in answer to this question? The character just speaks. The character is in them and comes out with the response, and it's it's emotional and it's it's funny, but it's coming out of a place that's way back in the unconscious, and it's it's it feels genuine. You did you you directed the last episode, yes, yeah. yeah. Which I still I I knew a lot of people had watched it, but it is the num- It's like the most watched thing in the history of television. Well, it's like 125 million people. Or something I don't think crazy. anybody really knows the, f- the figures vary. Yeah, but we we got reports that people were filling town halls. So in on one set, there might have been a hundred people watching or fifty oh my people. God. 
living rooms had families. You know, it wasn't the usual thing of, uh, well, now this sounds like I'm trying to make it worse than it was, <laughs> or better than it was. It was what it was. About half the country was watching, and that's, oh an, that's an amazing thing. So the... I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, so I apologize. But the decision to not do the laugh track in the last episode, was it just to kind of honor the journey of the show and sort of say, like, this is this is serious. This is this is know. really funny. I didn't remember that it didn't have a laugh track. Is that true? I don't think it did. If I remember You're probably correctly, right. I don't I think I th- and I think it was a big story at the time. Like it's there's it's not going to be because and I here's the other reason why I seem to remember that it didn't. Because it's Hawkeye gets really fucked up in the last episode, and then there's the you know the chicken and the kitten, the yeah. baby, and the yeah. and so I I honestly don't think I I don't think there was a laugh track the entire that entire last. Yeah, there episode. were probably so many moments that would have run counter to a laugh track. Right, we we didn't have it. I don't remember the decision. I guess the decision was made early on. Uh, Gene Reynolds got CBS to agree that there wouldn't be a laugh track when we were in surgery. So oh. he said, oh, the surgery is too important. You're, you know, we're doing jokes in surgery. Right. But he, somehow he convinced them that the surgery was, I guess, too serious an event to put a laugh track in. But anyway, where is where is the audience supposed to be hiding during this scenes? Are they under the cots? In the, right. It, it, it was the old-fashioned idea that, the audience wouldn't know it was a comedy <laughs> if they didn't hear people laughing. <laughs> they, they go, oh, ah, oh, yeah, oh, right, it's it funny. Is. Oh, wow. But they kept, you know, on our show, they kept the laugh track so low that people would say to me, it's great that you have a show with no laugh track, because I think they were laughing at the same time. Oh, they to, weren't hearing it. They, they didn't hear it. Yeah, oh, that's great. And it, it didn't overpower the sound of the show. Do you ever think about what happened to Hawkeye? Like, do you think he ever got? Was he ever okay after the war? Did he was did he just go home completely twisted? <laughs> well, I'm completely twisted. So, <laughs> so based on that, I I don't I never think about that. I think about what's in it when we're doing it, and then I really don't I don't think too much about the past. That was it. Then it just ended where it ended. Yeah. Um, when you, did you take a break after the show for a while or did you want to immediately jump to the theater? Or? Right after that, I was writing a movie called, uh, Sweet Liberty. Uh-huh. And, uh, I was having a little trouble concentrating because even though I had been instrumental in the show's ending, I got a little depressed because I didn't, I, I it was like stepping off a train speeding by at a thousand miles an hour. Suddenly I wasn't doing three jobs at once and going in every day and learning all the pages and finding the way to do it. And, you know, just just a different life. So... <clears throat> you want some water? You know what I want. Ah, that cleans out the throat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. The, the, the Remember old, when W.C. Field said, I want my, every afternoon, I want my uh, lemonade. <laughs> and then so, one day, they, he was so drunk, one day they put, they put actual lemonade in it instead of vodka. And he said, somebody has put lemonade in my lemonade. <laughs> 
the old the old Corona cure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what the hell were we talking about? Anyway? Well, we were you were you were saying that that, that there, you were depressed a little bit when the show ended because of the momentum. You know, it's like you know I would imagine. When you when you're in the middle of the show, it feels like oh this is going to go on forever, and then all of a sudden it's just over. Yeah, it stops, and it doesn't matter if you're the one who helps stop it. And I tell that to friends who are suddenly retiring, or or, or sometimes they get fired, you know, or or they say no, I'm going to stop now and I'm going to enjoy life. And I say, may not be what you think right away. Find something else to do that also represents a passion. And let that carry you. And it's not a good idea to stop dead and then try to look for a passion. I think it's a better idea to have one standing by, a passion in the wings. Yeah. Well, I think that's a title for a book. Passion in the Wings? Yeah. That's the next book. you gotta, you got to write the next book, Passion in the Wings, brought to you by Celebrity Tech. <laughs> Why let a nobody touch your stuff? <laughs> Paid for by a grant from the Celebrity Tech Institute. I mean, it, if we're doing plugs, let's plug my podcast. Yeah, you said you told me when I came in that you're gonna you're doing a podcast in July. You're starting the podcast. It's, it's, it's starting in July, and I'm and between now and then, I'll be interviewing a whole bunch of really fun people. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk with Sarah Silverman. Oh, I know Sarah. Yeah, Sarah's yeah, great. Yeah, I'm so happy to be talking to her. I really admire her, and uh, and the, each of these conversations is a lot like what you and I have been doing today, yeah. which is it's very much like the book. It's about relating and communicating in every aspect of life. You know, uh, a boss trying to get an employee motivated or an employee trying to get a boss to pay attention or make a raise and things like that. Or doctors talking to patients or patients talking to doctors and trying to get them to really pay attention to them. There isn't anything, I think there isn't anything we do that doesn't require more clarity and more vividness in the way we communicate with each other so that we have something happening between us yeah so that it lands on on us and we we have an exchange that's meaningful but part of the problem i think sometimes is that people you know i think people just take for granted they go oh we all speak the same language we pull from the same vocabulary book and then you realize no Everyone speaks a slightly proprietary language of their own, and that's where you are trying to connect with people or disconnected from people if you're not. Because someone might be saying something, and they'll say it more emphatically, and you still might have no... Uh, Even though they're saying words that you understand thoroughly. Yes, and it means something different to them than it does to you. Yeah, Very often, people will talk in code. They don't want to hurt your feelings. And they'll say something completely opposite from what they really mean. But they think they're hinting at you what the real thing is. And what's horrible about that is you, when you start to smell a rat and you think, wait a minute, this isn't as rosy as they're making it sound. They have a problem here. Then you start guessing what the problem is and you think the worst. And now instead of two people being on the same side of an issue and working it out together... It's getting more and more um, defensive and offensive. And there's a tug of war when they can be pulling in the same direction. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, somebody, absolutely. Somebody doesn't, isn't frank enough with you. Well, and then, yeah, and then you, you have the narrative in your head that's, of course, based on your own insecurities or whatever, your own baggage. 
And then you build this whole story about why something happened and why someone said something. And, oh, they were just, ah, they just tried to fuck me over. And then you talk to them, like, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking any of that. I was was just having a weird day. I don't know. It had nothing to do with you at all. (laughs) Yeah. Little things can grow into really big things. And sometimes there are big things that can be tunneled through and you can meet each other in the middle somewhere. And understand one another's point of view well enough to give a little. Yeah. What was your journey like with Scientific American by the time you came out of it after doing Frontiers for 11 years? I mean, did you feel infinitely more enlightened or did you feel like, oh, wow, it turns out I, I feel like I know less than I knew before I started this process? Well, it's very much like what you what you ended with. I It wasn't. It wasn't that I knew less. It was what what I really knew now was that I didn't know anywhere near what I had thought I knew. What I had thought I knew. Is that? Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I realized how important it was to say, I've heard from scientists that instead of, here's the way it is. Right. Because I don't know how the, how the way it is. And to some extent, they don't know fully the way it is either. They know what they know so far. And that's one of the lessons I think we have to learn about science and uh, that I always hope scientists will help us glom onto is that when they tell us something that they've newly discovered, they're not telling us something that's going to be true for all time in all respects. Right. They're going to learn more tomorrow, next year, 100 years from now, and they're going to see it in a different way. It's just in the same way that Einstein figured out what he did about gravity, which is remarkable and overturned what everybody had thought about gravity. But Newton had a version of gravity that still works. We still get to the moon with Newton, but we have GPS with Einstein. Right. Because we used the calculations that he came up with based on his understanding of gravity, which is so different from Newton's. But they're just too, it's a different frame of reference. It's a different aspect. It's a different way of conceiving it. And it doesn't mean that Einstein made Newton wrong. It's just he saw it in a different way. I think think I'm saying this correctly. I'm very happy to be uh, contradicted by somebody who knows better. <laughs> but that's that's what I get from talking to scientists about it's frustrating for them to for people to say, well, you told me coffee was bad for me last year. Now you're telling me it might be good for me. You can't oh, right. make up your mind. Yeah, yeah. It's that they keep learning new things about it. And it doesn't mean what they told you before is wrong. It's It's that in a different way of looking at it, it could be beneficial. Yeah. What do you think is the most important or what are you the most excited about scientifically? What do you think is like the the most exciting and important scientific discovery idea thing that you've encountered? And- One of the most important things to me personally is that there's all these little tiny animals in our bodies <laughs> that there are more cells, more microbe cells in our bodies than there are human cells. Now, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. We're walking factories or walking 
castles of little guys who have their own interests and they're, they're adapted to different parts of our bodies. This I find fascinating. I've read that the microbes in the palm of my hand are more like the microbes in the palm of your hand than they are like the microbes on my elbow. Oh, wow. Isn't that interesting? That, it, that's fantastic. The, they're, they're acclimated to certain parts of the body, on the back and the scalp. I, just, I do want to say, though, to the microbes on the palm of my hand, sorry for all the masturbating. Uh, <laughs> no, they've adapted to that. That's, <laughs> you, I would say know, the microbes on the palm of my hand are very similar to the microbes on the shaft of my penis. If you ever stop, millions of them are going to lie dead. <laughs> Damn it, you're right. I'm food, doing it. food. I must have food. <laughs> for them, it's like going to the factory. In fact, they subscribe to a magazine for you. <laughs> if I you like know it. what I mean. I do. But I like the idea that, you know, as much as we think we're so special and we're, you know, as humans, we're so special and we're so evolved that maybe we're just complicated vehicles for these microbes. And that's ultimately... Well, Richard, what I loved about Richard Dawkins... Who came up with the word meme, by the way. Yeah, Everybody yeah. uses meme. Uh, as Memetic. Just, yeah. Uh, his book, The Selfish Gene, made popular the idea, which I don't think was his in- invention, but he made it popular and made it really clear that we're here because genes want to live forever. <laughs> if genes could want anything, I don't right. want to anthropomorphize them. But they're... Their their engine for survival is so powerful that that's that we help them live. Our genes help them by our procreating. The genes go on and on. Um, and I just talked to E. O. Wilson a few months ago, who said he proved with several mathematicians that that's not true. So there, there's an example. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful example of getting to a really interesting view of nature and then somebody else says i don't think so no no probably not yeah and then you either say uh i see what you mean i agree or you die with your last breath saying i'm right i'm right uh. well how do you even know what's true anymore i mean you can you can really sort of create almost any reality of information that you want whether or not you know I mean, most people aren't going to source everything they read on the Internet. Well, that, that's a real question. I, I think you, you have to decide to what, to what extent you can check up on things and to what extent you have confidence in the reputations of the people you're listening to right. and the people who might be reporting it. Right. But as you, I find I have to go to some trouble sometimes to read between the lines or check up on a story with some other writer and see if I'm getting the real story about something that's happening. And it's not just in science, it's in everything. There's an article in Scientific American this month about how false stories or false news travels faster and sticks better than the truth. Jesus. <laughs> I, don't, I, I didn't read it uh, fully, so I don't know why 
why that's true, but it seems to be a... Th- yeah, you should just make up the reason. <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> why not? Yeah, yeah. That'll get to be the reason. <laughs> that, that'll, that'll actually get to be the yeah. reason. Well, it's the... the it was that, uh, that computer uh, simulation that uh, you know, started writing all of those science articles oh, with yeah. just jargon. I know. I mean, it's, it's so easy to... Because, again, most people... You can rely on the fact that most people will not... But the, most people may not get it, especially if it's jargon and they think, well, this must mean something. Right. But in the book, I wrote about this uh, computer program that can generate scientific appearing articles that have been submitted to journals and were printed in the journals, professional journals, who've, whose editors said... Well, this looks like it must be real. I don't understand some of these words, but they must know what they're talking about. Or some some construction like that that enabled them to print these things that were just nonsense. They were deliberate nonsense to see how far they could go of faking their way through. That's horrible <laughs> because it yeah. basically means how, you know, if – some of the most popular institutions uh, can be fooled. I don't know how popular that. Oh, okay, I all right. They, they were professional, but I don't know if they were the leading ones. Okay, gotcha. However, I think it's a great service because it gives a warning call to everybody to really do the homework and make sure that you're getting the straight stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's in a way, it's almost like hacking, where it's like, oh, we hacked yeah. your process. Yeah. That means there's a security flaw. You should probably fix that. Yeah, which is why I guess uh, we're congratulating Russia for hacking us, <laughs> right. because they've, they've really taught us a great lesson. <laughs> thanks so, for the lesson. Thanks so much. <laughs> Was there anyone—I mean, the great thing about being you is that you t- t- there's so many— Times in the book where you go, oh, I was interested in this scientist, so I just called them up, and then they I came. Know. Out. Isn't that fun? It's great. So you could I imagine that you met Richard Feynman, and you knew all the you knew. No, all I the, wish I had. You did. You never did. You no, know, I, I read about him for the first time after he was dead. Oh, or no, he no, he was still alive, but I had no reason to call him. I mean, I, I if I if I read something by somebody that I was really really interested, in. I have a, a very close friend now who. I didn't know until I read an article by him. <clears throat> Sorry, until I read an article by him in uh, Scientific American, and I called him up, and he uh, was very generous. I visited him at MIT, and uh, we had a great time talking about his work. Then we went down to the cafeteria, and while we were having lunch, a student came over, and he was trembling. You know, and I'm I'm used to people being disoriented a little when they see somebody who's to them famous. Right. And he came over to the table and he said, are you Steve Strogatz? (laughs) (laughs) He didn't didn't know or care who I was. That was great. That's nice, though. It's kind of nice that someone recognized a scientist over an actor. It's it's so, you know... We don't. We don't always realize that certain people are celebrities to other people who we wouldn't think of as celebrities. Absolutely. And but we all have somebody who would make us stutter when we meet them. Yeah. Well, and you know, we're in an era. I mean, it sounds like you've been a. Uh, you were sort of a proto nerd. You were a nerd before it was a popular thing to be, but. 
now we're in an age where science, you know, we're in the Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye era where scientists are actually like yeah. multiple scientists are very famous yeah. and, you know, engineers or people who create technology. So it is it is a golden era for nerds, I think. It's, an, it's a good time. I hope so. And I hope they get better and better at communicating with us in ways that are flavorful to us that we can really glom onto and enjoy. It, it's, it's so beautiful, the work they do. Whether it's whether it's astronomy or biology or even technology and engineering, it's really interesting to see how these problems are solved. I mean, we all are solving problems all day long, and sometimes we entertain ourselves just picking up a Chinese puzzle or a sudo, sudoku, sudoku. sudoku thing. My wife does sudoku day and night. She's so good at it. The number puzzle. Yeah. But... Uh, we love solving puzzles, and to see how other people solve some of the greatest puzzles in the universe is very entertaining. Have you been to MIT's Puzzle Hunt? I never heard of it. What is it? It's exactly what you're talking about, but it's a game. How does it work? It works by the team who won the previous year constructs a puzzle. Oh, what a good idea. And there are a bunch of teams that compete. And so the year do you that sit I went down at a table, or do you run around? <sighs> in this? It's it's not like a scavenger hunt, but there is a lot of running around in the sense that. So what the year I saw it, the previous year's winners came out. They had designed the puzzle and they did a sketch, like some sort of a presentation. And from that, all the teams got like they had to figure out what all the clues were, and they had to solve like a series of meta puzzles, and each. Each line of meta puzzles had a, revealed a clue that solved a bigger meta puzzle. I mean, it's the most insane thing I've ever seen, and they do it in a weekend. Wow. So it just, you know, that showed me, like, if you aim enough nerds at something, like, you could solve a lot of stuff, you know? Yeah, and it feeds this love of solving puzzles. I think you, I, I'm sure they still do it, and I think, I think you'd get a kick out of it if you I, ever. It sounds like it'd be a little beyond me. But you remind me that I, I, I wrote a, a play about Einstein. And I, in the research, I came across this interesting homey thing he said. He said, my wife and I don't do puzzles or play games at home because we spend our whole day solving puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> so they just stare at each other the at puzzle home. puzzle of gravity. You know? Yeah, that, 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 those puzzles. I'm not going to play slides and ladders. What's that kid? Shoots and ladders. Shoots and ladders. Snakes and ladders, if you're British. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... The through line of all of it, I think the through line of the improvisation, the through line of the communication and, and, and science communication and particularly seems to be, you know, you say the word empathy. Empathy is the through line of the book. It really has been something that's become very important in my life. <clears throat> Sorry. That's all right. Em- empathy has become important in my life. And I see that to a great extent, one of the th- trajectories I've been on is to try to understand it and be able to practice it, to use it. I wasn't tremendously empathic when I was a kid or a young man. I probably had some capacity for it, but I was really interested in myself. Yeah. And you often say the wrong thing if you don't think think about what the other person is getting or how they're hearing it. So I can remember a lot of times. I can wince at things I said 30, 40 years ago. 
Ah, it's uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah, they're dead now. Yes. <laughs> Fuck the them. Hell? They're dead. Yeah, what am I worried about? <laughs> you won. You're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so you were right. <laughs> but, you know, empathy just sort of being... I actually just saw a story. I don't know if you saw this. But did they just determine that empathy... That a percentage of empathy might be genetic, that there might be that it might be a little bit nature and not just nurture. I haven't heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I I would imagine that we all come in with uh, some capacity for it, but it it can be taught. Some people think it can't be taught that you're stuck with what you come in with. Uh, other people think that you you don't come in with any. And you must be taught, you know, through early nurturing. But, you know, just like other, other things that you, uh, you possess, some, some of which are genetic and some are developed, it's, it's always, it seems to me it's always a combination of the two. The, the old argument of nature-nurture is, <clears throat> I think that's a false, a false dichotomy. Oh yeah, you think in, it's in just... most cases from what I hear from scientists. <laughs> well, you've talked to a few. Yeah, <laughs> so you I, probably I, know. And I really, I hope I haven't sounded like I think I know because I'm no. just trying to figure it out. No, not at all. Was there a particular moment in the show where you thought, "Aha, I'm going to impress this scientist," and then you drop a fact and they go, "That's not true at all." Yeah. Well, the awful thing was I would do that in the very beginning. And they were too embarrassed with the camera turning to say that's not true at all. Oh, gotcha. And I'd see this terrible anguish on their face because <laughs> they don't want to hurt my feelings. And they know that I'm driving them into a corner that they can't get out of. I'd tell them about that. So, you know, a thing about your work is that and, and it wouldn't be true at all. And that, that's the point when I stopped reading their articles and, and their journals, uh, their, their studies before I went in to interview them. I would go in just with general knowledge and have them tell me what they did and then try to understand it. Instead of thinking I could understand it in advance. Why would I understand it in advance? I'm not an expert in that field. I have to start out innocent of any thought of having knowledge and as ignorant as I actually am. It's good to be ignorant if you're curious. Oh, that's great. That's great. I mean, you because... You know, being on the most popular television show in the history of television and being super famous at a time where, you know, it's things are different in the world media now and entertainment. But at that time, and still being able to come out of that and go, ah, there are bigger things than I. There's, you know, science and the universe. and the, I mean, that's not common, you know. Like, that's not common for someone to come off a hit show and go, I'm going to go explore science. There are bigger things yeah. than just me. Well, you have to realize I'm monumentally humble. <laughs> I, it, well, I, you know what it is? I followed my nose. And I was lucky enough to be able to afford to do that. Most people have their nose in the grindstone, and they can't afford to take it out. So I, I'm, I am started talking about luck. I'm extremely lucky, and I know it. But you, but how long have you been married now? Sixty-one years. So, yesterday, day before. Oh yesterday. my God! Congratulations. What's, what's the date today? Today is the sixteenth. 
Yesterday was 61 years. The Ides of March. Happy anniversary. Yes. I wrote a little poem about the Ides of March the day we were married. You did? Yeah. Do you remember it? No. Okay. <laughs> I remember uh, I remember a limerick I wrote. It had nothing to do with getting married. D- drop it in. We were driving through England, and the game was every time we passed through a town— we have to come up with a limerick about the name of that town. Oh, my God. So we drove through Settle, <laughs> S-E-T-T-L-E, okay. the town of Settle. And I made this up. A beer-drinking lady from Settle took a mid-morning pee in her kettle. <laughs> At quarter to three, her husband made tea and said, Darling, you've tested my metal. <laughs> doesn't love a good British pea drinking limerick. <laughs> that is epic. What is the what is the key to a 61 year I mean obviously I would imagine that as also, that also kept you tethered as well to not go crazy is to have a, a solid relationship. Yeah. But what's the is it well, empathy or I don't think it, anybody knows what it is, but Arlene, my wife, says the secret of a long marriage is a short memory. <laughs> What the hell with her, you know? <laughs> She'll never remember you say that. Yeah, it's totally fine. That's it's right. totally yeah, fine. thank God. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, the book is phenomenal. It's called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? And, uh, and I, I really recommend that it, people not only just read it, but maybe get the audiobook too, because it's so, it's so oh, great. Oh, that's really nice. It's thank so great you. To, hear you, to hear you read thank it. Thank you. And, and, that, and, and I'm going to plug myself again. You may not even leave this in. Plug it. But... I'm hoping that the the nature of the book will be what infuses the podcast, which is going to be called Clear, Clear and Vivid, that, that the, what you got out of listening to the book is what I hope the podcast will deliver, talking to interesting people who are facing real problems in communication and relating, and we can learn how to do that better. Because, God, if we need to get... Together, we need to do it more than we ever have in in any time I can remember. I mean, it's not just everybody complains that Congress can't talk to one another. They can't get things done. You have to be careful when you go to dinner with a friend now not to say the wrong thing. Sure. Depending which side of the political line you're on. Oh, yeah. It's not – there's no – I mean, we're in an era now where if you don't – 100% 100% agree with someone that seems to give people the green light to just make them their enemy. And I was like, well, yeah. that's not going to solve anything. You have right. to compromise and talk and come together. And, know, you know, m- most people are not evil. They just have their whatever their interests are. And so how, how do you get around that, do you think? How can you lower people's defenses? And even if you're on the complete opposite side still be able to have a polite discourse well in all the ways that we try to teach scientists to communicate and doctors to communicate and people in business which essentially is taking in the other person accepting that accepting the idea that what they have to say could possibly change you for the better it's a crazy idea why should I think, you and I just met, why should I think anything you have to say to me can make me better? Especially if I hear you 
say something that I deeply disagree with. Right. Well, how else am I going to learn if I don't learn from you? I got to learn from somebody. If I keep learning from people who say the same thing I say, I'm never going to get to someplace new. I have to hear dissent. I have to hear crazy ideas. Maybe something new will come up that's valuable to both of us. If it gets to be a two-way street, we'll both benefit. Yeah, but I think people get so scared about their own, oh, I can't, I don't want, I can't learn anything new or I can't violate this bubble that I've built around myself. And Yeah, well, that I, I've felt that too. I know what that's like. It's scary. It's like that woman who didn't want to improvise and she was going to fake a heart attack. Right. Uh, it's It's scary to let go. That's why... It's really valuable to practice giving up control and trusting the other person. It, it's so valuable. You feel free by it. You don't, you don't have to be right all the time. I, I can tell you I feel, now maybe this is not true for everybody, but I feel so good. I have a, I'm flooded with a little shot of dopamine when I honestly say to somebody, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I, that's an interesting question. I, I have no idea. When I was a young man, I'd make up an answer. <laughs> I'd come up with something that sounded reasonable, and I'd say it as though it were true because it felt good to have the answer to a tough question. Now it feels so much better to admit I don't have the answer. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to tell people what to do. I can let people come up with their own ideas and respond. It's, it, it feels good, but it's like exercise feels good after you're done with it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But this actually can feel good while you're doing it. Adapt, adjust, revise? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I don't know why I chose those three words. I chose them in a couple of minutes. Well, you're in but, Scotland, and they only gave you a few words, so you literally gave them a few words. Yeah, but they, they turn out to be pretty good words. At least I I work by them. <clears throat> Just for <clears throat> people at home who are listening that say, hey, you know, this idea, even if I'm not going to go into comedy or go into improvising or be an actor, but just as a way to get some more social tools, is there like a, 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 a quick game that you can throw out that people could implement in their own lives that's pretty simple? Well, I talk about it in the book. What I do, what I practice a lot is when I'm talking to somebody, I catch myself sometimes 10, 15 minutes into a conversation. I, I wouldn't be, if I turned away from the person, I wouldn't be able to tell you what color their eyes are or what shape their nose is, how their hair is fixed. It's amazing how if you just look away from somebody for a second, instead of seeing their face in your imagination, you see a blur where the face is. Mm -hmm. So I practice really taking in the face and figuring it out almost as if I were going to draw it or something. I can't draw, but if I was going to commit the elements of the face to paper, I, I look at it while I'm talking. Sometimes it distracts me from what I'm saying. But I'm talking to the person. I'm taking them in, and it, it leads to a little more connection. <laughs> Honey, I think Alan Alda is staring at me. Yes, right. He's giving me that look. <laughs> Don't worry. He's just taking you in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's practicing empathy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's scary. 
Well, but ultimately, I guess what that does is it gets you out of your own head. It gets you to pay attention to other people, yeah. and it gets you to to listen. Yeah. And and I think that's our big challenge is not just hearing people, but become better listeners. The funny thing that we've found out in these workshops is the person who's trying to communicate something has to be a better listener than the person listening. Oh, wow. Because if you're not aware of what the other person is going through, in effect, listening to them with your eyes and your ears, then you're you're never going to make sure that they're getting it. You're just going to hope they get it. Yeah. Well, you said something that, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm a comedian, but I'm not an actor. But you said something that if I were going to be an actor was one of the most succinct, brilliant things about acting that I've ever heard. Maybe you can apply this in real life, but you said... You have to find your performance in the other person. The other person's eyes. In the other person's eyes. Yeah, that's that, right. That's an incredible... I didn't make that up. I'm sure that other actors have said the same thing. Ah, take credit for it. No one's yeah. going to check. Yeah, it's in the book. <laughs> Let them write a book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're dead. Come on. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> what are they going to do? But that's true. You know, if you figure out a performance... And do it every night, regardless of what's happening in the other actor's face. It, it's not going to look to the audience like two people in real, a real t- entanglement. It's going to look like you're reciting lines that right. you've memorized. And if both people respond to each other like a leaf in the wind and change second by second, millisecond by millisecond, then you're going to see something that happens between the lines that convinces you that they're really connected and that they're really engaged in this tug of war that they're going going through on stage. And it's easier to do on stage than it is in film because in film, you shoot a close-up of you, then you shoot a close-up of me, and they don't necessarily throw b- the ball back and forth. Right. Because your close-up could be from take two and mine could be from take 12. Right. But I still think it's a good thing to practice in real life is is finding your, you know, if, if when you're talking to someone, if you're really trying to find your story together in their eyes, then maybe even just that adjustment will yeah. create empathy, allow you to connect with people more, get you out of your own head. I mean, that's a, a very simple thing to do. But yeah. I just think most people just don't think about it. Yeah, the funny thing is we think we are looking and seeing the other person. And I had this amazing moment one day when I realized I was looking at the person, but I wasn't seeing them. I wasn't, I, I wasn't aware of important features in their face. So I must not have been seeing them. Yeah. Do you think too... You sort of talk about this a little bit. There's a section on dark empathy. Yeah. But is too much empathy impossible? In other words, if you, if every person you encountered you were wholly empathetic with, you know, could you handle that, first of all? It's an incredible amount of energy. Would you be able to process that much? Or, you know, like when does it not become helpful? This is a problem that many doctors have where – if they reach the point where they're very empathic with their patients, unless they develop the ability to withdraw a little bit, 
they can get swamped by the emotion. And and it, it can lead to burnout. They have to get in, but they have to get out. Right, right, right. Right. The the dark empathy that I try to talk about is when you use empathy because empathy I think is just a tool. It doesn't make you a good person. Right. If you want to be a good person, empathy can kick you over into that action of good behavior. Well, you can con people too. You can con people with empathy and salesmen do it all the time. Used car salesmen are probably very empathic. And when you take your family out in this car, you're going to feel like a million bucks. <laughs> you know, I just have to say, just because people couldn't see it, your face changed when you went into used car salesman mode, and I wanted to buy a fucking car from you. <laughs> it was like, it was just really like, and even, because you have a very pleasant face, but it was even more like, ah, oh, the, the, the smile lines, and the, it was so nice. I'm like, oh my God. Well, it's true, you know. You, empathy, empathy, some people, one pharmaceutical company trained its salesmen to use empathy to convince doctors to buy the pills. Whether or not it was good for the patients. <laughs> they had studies that showed it was bad for the patients. Oh, great. Oh, well, you know, hey, pharmaceutical <laughs> industry. <laughs> yeah. And they, they paid a huge fine for that. Well, that's good. <clears throat> but I, I'm <clears throat> really... Uh, it's really an honor to chat with you. I mean, you. I, I mean, I knew some things about you, but listening to the book just opened up all these other amazing worlds to me about how passionate you are about science and and connection and communication and and even you know, are, even to hear that at eighty one, eighty two, eighty, I'm eighty two. I think I'm eighty two. You know, oh, yeah. I'm starting a podcast now. Like it, yeah. it the the relentless pursuit of passion and you know connecting with other people is has taken you to some really fascinating places is as we're wrapping this up is there anything that you're most proud of from all this this? very interview that's all i wanted (laughs) if if there was a blackout director the lights would just black Black out out. blackout (laughs) well you can do theme music yeah oh that's perfect yeah yeah we'll just right there but i really i can't thank you enough thanks for having me in your hotel i had a great time thank you thank you and and good luck with the podcast thank you uh, It's, it's fun to do and you're really good at it oh thank you no give me tips uh, what, do you have any tips you can give me? I've been giving you tips for an hour. <laughs> well, it is. What did you learn? What did you learn doing the podcast that that I I should save my time uh, going through the learning process on? You said a lot of the things at the beginning of your pod at the beginning of your book about how you found because a lot of times people say like, oh, do you prepare questions and you do yeah. it? and I go no because if you have an agenda, you're not paying attention to the yeah. moment. Yeah. And then if you know everything, then you're not really going to ask questions. And if you do, you're going to direct those questions. So I feel like you do everything that, you know, I think what people don't understand about when they listen to an audio thing is that when you're sitting across from someone, you're taking in every bit of information. So you're watching their body language and you're seeing when they, if they don't want to talk about something or you're seeing if they shift or they smile, they're happy. So sometimes people will listen, they'll go, hey man, why did you do this? Or why didn't you talk about? And it's like, oh, because I have information you don't have. Like yeah. I can see this person. But honestly, I don't think there's anything I can tell you that you're not already doing. Just talk to people that interest you and that's it. You're the vessel you're basically the transportation device for the audience, you know, like you, you're their ride for being a fly on the wall. And 
humanizing these people that they wouldn't necessarily think of as human because they're used to seeing them as in two dimensions. There's something very interesting. I, I, I value what you're saying, and I'm, I'm uh, going to keep it in mind. And I, I think I, I, you sound like you're totally on the right track, and it's borne out in the way you do uh, your, your own show. And in addition, it sounds to me, the more I've done podcasts as the person being interviewed or interviewing other people... It reminds me of the old days in television when you weren't on a big network talk show. You're on a local show Mm -hmm. where it didn't matter if it wasn't stimulating every second. There was more creativity. On the big shows, they'd come to your report before the show and say, Johnny Carson's going to ask you this, and you answer this. Yeah. And And then it's a script. It's like a script. Yeah. Whereas here, you have the freedom partly because you can edit it, and partly because I think the listener expects a freewheeling conversation. It's not four minutes of bing, bang, boom. Right, right. Well, the only other thing I would say, and it sounds like you already do this, but you know, on the science show, you have science as the backbone, so you always know that that's kind of going to be your, mm-hmm. your track. But I kind of like to just let the... Where, wherever the person is at, I just start from there. If someone's very energetic when they come in, mm-hmm. I just let them be energetic and I follow them. Yeah. And just kind of keep the ball in the air that way. And if they're very mellow, I just I really just kind of let them emotionally direct it until they're comfortable and then we kind of lift it up. So I guess, you know, I mean, I feel dumb even telling you this cuz I feel like you already did no, no, do no, this, no, but good. just just be open to going wherever the other person seems like they want to go and you know, maybe it takes you in directions you never expected before. or Maybe you end up talking about something completely nonsensical. But that, I think, is kind of where the secret sauce of the podcast is. That you're describing improv. I guess that's true. That's so yeah. great. Yeah, yeah I guess that great. is true. And, and so good to remember. And so good to state and restate so many different ways, as many different ways as possible. And I, and I will keep that in mind. Boy, I, I did... I, I, I followed the stand-up track, but there was a period of time where I took classes at the Groundlings like 20 years oh, ago. Yeah. And when I realized I was not going to be a great... I can riff, but like in structured improv, the stand-up genes take over and I just start trying to control the scene. <clears throat> making know? jokes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, jokes, jokes are forbidden in improv. Yes, yes, yes. There was one teacher that if I made a, if anyone made a joke, he'd be like, "Joke, stop it!" And you just get really, <laughs> just get really. Uh, yeah, people don't. You know, the regular audience doesn't understand that that improvising is not a series of jokes. I right. Mean, classic improvising. There are there's enter, there are entertainments like whose line is it anyway, where their job is to come up with a funny thing. Yeah, every, those are games. Yeah, well, they're tr- they're they're supposed to be funny every fifteen seconds or less. Right. But there's a there's a more fundamental kind of improvising that doesn't do that. And you're ultimately just finding the story together. Yeah, 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 and and that thing of yes and is at work all the time, where you you accept what the other person gives you. And you say, and there's also this element in it too. Yeah. You know the, the the way I write about it in the book is from the from a scientist who is an improviser, and he he describes yes and as one guy says they're in they're in front of an audience and they're on the stage and one says look at all that water down there 
And the other one says, that's not water, that's the stage. Yeah, the scene's dead. Scene's dead. He gets a laugh, but he's killed the entire thing. <laughs> the show closes, people go, they can't pay their mortgage. Everyone dies. Because he said, yes, no. <laughs> so, the, on the contrary, if he says, yeah, let's dive into that water and let's follow that whale out there. Yeah. And so, the end is the whale, but the yes is no matter how weird the the idea is that you're presented with, you let it in, and then you play with it. You add to it. You don't say no. You don't say but. It's really it's a fundamental idea, and I see so many people in these workshops, when they get the idea, it's liberating because you don't have to go into a fight. You don't have to say, this will never do. Forget it. Not possible. Right. You say, yeah, that's, let's see. And what if we do it like this? What, what if we add this to it? And, and you find out that there actually has been a contribution, but neither of you realized it until the end came in. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it, it is just getting people to a space where they're comfortable and open and yeah. not scared right. and right. defensive. Now, this reminds me of what an old vaudevillian once said. It's easy to get on stage. You throw your hat on and follow it on. The hard part is getting off. <laughs> how do we get off? How do you ever? How do you not milk it? Yeah. How do you not milk? I, yeah, I think that's probably the perfect place to end. Because <laughs> otherwise, I'm just going to keep milking this, and uh, I would talk to you all day. But I guess I guess we will take we will take our bows right now. Alan Alden and I are bowing. There's applause. The, the crowd the crowd is go. So only two people showed up to this performance, but they are dedicated fans. <laughs> That's one person making the noise for an entire audience, uh, but he's very enthusiastic. And uh, I just I wish you the continued success and best of luck with everything. Thank you. You too. It was oh. a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Oh, and I'm gonna I gotta end this with normally we say uh, enjoy your burrito is how we end the podcast. Why, may, the, why the hell do you say that? Because it means enjoy your present. It's all about living in the moment. Enjoy the burrito as oh, you're eating it. Oh, 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 oh. But okay. but I I feel like I wanna I wanna do a creepy thing and you, you have a line in Crimes and Misdemeanors that I still think about all the time where you say if it bends it's funny if it breaks it isn't funny yeah and I still think about that do you think that's true oh I think it's very true in fact I think that that's starting I've seen comedy that challenges that idea and I don't think it works except it seems to work for younger people there's a movie where I forget who did it where a guy's arm is shot off and he's bleeding from the, and it's supposed to be a funny moment yeah I would say having your arm ripped off is breaking it, <laughs> but within the context of the story it could be really funny yeah, I think you have to be willing to accept a certain pint of blood. <laughs> well, so people, always, you know, they always say like, oh, comedy is tragedy plus time, you know. But I think comedy is tragedy plus distance. And distance and time is a measurement of distance. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of Mel Brooks. I think Mel said when a man, uh, somebody falls into a manhole, uh, you know, a sewer manhole. Yeah. That's funny. That's comedy. When you fall in, that's tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Adapt, adjust, revise. The end. <laughs> but it's not over. 
See, I told you at the very beginning, if you listen to the intro, that I was going to tag something on the end, and here it was. So I was so um, kind of flustered, actually, in a, in a positive way when Alan asked for my advice on podcasting that I feel so I, – I had the perfect opportunity to then get reciprocal information because he's starting a podcast, which I've been doing for many years, and I am starting a science show – which he has done, had, had done for many years. So I just got so caught up in my own head that what I should have said was, hey, now while we're on the topic, could I get some advice, uh, words of wisdom for starting a science show, which is the awesome show that we're in pre-production on right now. And so I beat myself about, about it all the way home which is something I do sometimes, like, oh, you idiot, why didn't, oh, you should have, it would have been amazing, how could you not ask this man what he thought about this thing you want to do? So, uh, fortunately, we traded emails, and I shot him an email, and uh, I said, I feel totally stupid, but do you have any advice for me? I should have asked this before, and I'm dumb for not. Do you have any advice for me with regards with regard to making the science show? Any nuggets of wisdom are welcome. And uh, he wrote back, uh, Chris, I had a really great time. Uh, you're a terrific conversationalist and you make it fun. Oh, come on. Um, my advice is to do exactly what we talked about. Engage them in real conversations. Be curious and don't come in thinking, you know, something and don't leave until you do and keep fishing for human personal stories. And the one thing we didn't mention, don't forget the mysterious beauty of nature. You'll be great. So, uh, was completely beside myself to get this incredibly sweet and complimentary email with some very simple words of wisdom for the science podcast, which I mean, for the science show, which I think are applicable to pretty much life, everything in life, you can apply these words of wisdom. But um, I express so much gratitude and appreciation, not only for what I get to do and the things that I get to make, but the people that I get to encounter who have legitimately in these 900 and whatever, 47 podcasts and counting um, have helped me strive to be a better person. And I really thank them for that, <laughs> for letting me sponge off their genius. So uh, thanks so much. And for reals this time, enjoy your burrito. ID 10 T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today. <laughs> 